Hello everyone, and welcome to Lockdown Law. Thank you for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Don't forget to check me out on Instagram. My username is Law Lockdown. Check out my website, www.lockdownlaws.com. And finally, if you have the time, please give me a rating on Apple Podcast. Either way, thank you for listening, and I appreciate your support. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Lockdown Law. My guest today is Professor Bradley Hart. Professor Hart teaches at California State University, Fresno. He's also the author of the book, Hitler's American Friends, the Third Reich Supporters in the United States. Professor Hart, thank you for joining me today. Well, thank you for having me. This is going to be a lot of fun. And you're live from the nation's capital, is that right? I am, that's right. How's it, how's it looking out there right now? It's been a rough start to the year. Rough start to the year. Um, I was here during the the Capitol insurrection on the 6th of January, which was a, uh, a frankly, fairly terrifying experience. I could hear the explosions from my uh, apartment window of both the uh, flashbangs and and the um, unexploded pipe bombs near the DNC and the RNC. So really a um, an experience that I will always remember. Well, that's pretty scary. I'm glad you're safe. Um, and it's a lot different than Fresno. Is that right, where you're from? It's, it's quite a bit different. I would say the weather is quite a bit different. It's about uh, 40 degrees here today and with a slight threat of snow, which I think I've seen once in my life in Fresno. But, uh, you know, I think both both towns have a lot of merits for them. I, I like Fresno a lot, uh, maybe not so much in the summer. And, and I like D.C. a lot for, for other reasons. Well, Fresno State, it's a great school. Uh, I know a lot of people that went there and I want to sincerely thank you for, you know, your dedication and time educating our youth now. Absolutely. You know, I love teaching. Um, I love talking about the stuff that we're going to talk about today and, uh, and teaching other stuff as well. So, you know, it's, it's really, it's one of those jobs that, you know, you don't really think is a job so much as much as it is a, a passion. Yes. And it's super important that we educate our youth and our history. And I feel like we're definitely lacking in that uh, now when you talk to young people. <laughs> I guess there's not enough history on TikTok. I don't know. Maybe we can fix yeah. that. <laughs> All right, well, let's get into it. We're going to be talking about World War II today. Um, so before we really get into World War II, I think it's important to understand World War I, which at the time was called the Great War because nobody expected World War II. So let's get into World War I. We'll go over it roughly. Why did it start? And tell me, who were the players or the teams involved? Well, that is a great question. And I would say when you talk about 20th century history, which is really my specialty, I think it's it's the biggest question of the century in that sense. Why does this, this war between these immense empires really break out? You know, there's a couple of, of easy answers to that. The easiest one being the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand in 1914 in Sarajevo. Um, but that's really just the proximate cause. Uh, you know, historians have debated this question for more than a century now, but you have a, a set of factors that really create a tinderbox in Central Europe. You have the, the unification of Germany in 1871, which we forget had never existed before. There was no Germany prior to 1871. So suddenly you have this huge country coalescing for the first time amidst formerly rival 
powers, actually. I mean, the German states have been at war with one another for centuries. And so now they are unified under, under the Prussian crown. And now you have this economic and military powerhouse in the middle of Europe. Um, you also have Germany um, massively industrializing. So Germany becomes one of the most industrialized nations in Europe after 1871, which poses a direct threat to, of course, Britain and France, its neighbors. So that's factor one, is, is the fact that Germany simply didn't exist prior to 1871, and, and there's a direct lineage between that and the events of 1914. The second factor, though, that I often point to when I talk about this is the entangling alliances that Europe and Europe's decision makers have really gotten themselves into by 1914. And part of this is the fact that, that no one really knew where the alliance lines were drawn. And, and when we get to talk about the contemporary world, we can talk about the fact that since 1914, this has been something that, that statesmen have tried to avoid. But in 1914, there's a bunch of secret alliances that no one really understands. Um, you know, for instance, the fact that, that Russia and France are actually fairly close allies in this period, right? This was sort of known, but, but the extent to which Russia would go and France would go to back Russia um, was not really understood. The fact that Britain had a um, defense treaty with Belgium, a treaty in which they were pledged to defend Belgium's neutrality, um, this was something that the Germans didn't fully understand. And in fact, even the British didn't fully understand it. When, when Germany violates Belgium's neutrality, there's a debate in Whitehall as to whether they are legally and treaty bound to defend Belgium. And there's a faction that says, no, we simply shouldn't defend Belgium. It's not worth it. It's not in Britain's interests. But the other side wins out. Um, and so you have these sort of entangling alliances, and that's not to mention, of course, um, you know, Russia's alliances with Serbia and other countries in Eastern, in what we now call Eastern Europe, um, that, that will draw it into the conflict as well. So part of it is that no one really understands the extent to which these countries are willing to go to honor their treaty obligations. And that's why I think some of the more sensible historians have written and, and sort of speculated that really what happens in World War I is a failure of diplomacy. And it's a failure of diplomacy that, that the world since 1945 has gone to great lengths to try to avoid happening again um, because of, of the risk of something just simply getting out of control, like what happens during the July crisis. Okay, so basically there was an assassination that kind of just tipped the scales and escalated quickly um, and led to a world war. Um, can you lay out the teams for us, though? Which countries fought against each other in World War I? Sure. So, so the main powers, and really maybe a chronological approach is easiest to understand this. So, so initially, the, the assassination victim is Archduke Franz Ferdinand of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the heir to the throne, who was assassinated by a Serbian nationalist in Sarajevo. So, so we have two, two parties already at play here. We have the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which is huge, Austria and Hungary, plus a bunch of other places uh, that are no longer part of, of Austria or Hungary. Um, that's faction one, and they are allied with Germany. This is the central powers. There's other players there as well, but those are the big ones. Um, really, the other side of that equation is Serbia, its ally, Russia. Um, they are bound by, by religion and by Slavic heritage. So Russia will defend Serbia's interests when Austria-Hungary attacks. Um, and Russia, in turn, has an alliance with France, which in turn has a alliance with Britain. But really, for Britain, the key factor is its pledge to defend Belgium's neutrality. So even more so than an alliance, it's more that Britain has treaty obligations elsewhere. And of course, Britain's interests lie not even necessarily in Europe, but with the British Empire, which spans about a third of the globe in this period. This is almost almost the high point of the British Empire, actually. They will actually gain land at the uh, negotiating tables of Versailles, but this is really the peak of, of the British Empire prior, 
prior to that. Now, the country I haven't mentioned at all is the United States, because the United States, of course, is neutral until 1917. And there is a great debate in the United States, actually, which we often forget today, as to whether the U.S. should join the, the central power side of this war. Should they be in the war at all? Or if they do join the war, there, there is at least an off chance that they will join Germany and Austria-Hungary. One factor there that I talk about a lot in my book is that the U.S. has a very large German population in this period. There are German language newspapers. There are people who have immigrated fairly recently who have relatives fighting for the central powers. And so the U.S. entering the war and the side that it enters in on is by no means a foregone conclusion. Yeah, that's so fascinating. Um, you said that Great Britain at one point owned a third of the globe. That's where that saying comes in. The sun never set on the British Empire, right? And in 1914, it's literally true that, that at some point in the course of a given day, the rotation of the earth, right, the sun is always shining somewhere on the British Empire. Absolutely. And that's simply true because they have Australia and South Africa and, and a bunch of. Yeah, India at the time, too. Right. Brown India and yes. Canada. OK, so um, and that's a good point as well, that the United States was not guaranteed to uh, go in on the side of France and England. Um, there was still maybe a, a bitter taste in their mouth against the uh, British Empire. Is that a fair statement? <laughs> absolutely. Well, you know, it's not only absolutely a lot of anti-British sentiment in the U.S. actually, and that's also partially because there's a large Irish-American population, and the Irish are, are not big fans of the British Empire as, as a uh, post-colonial state themselves. So, yeah, you have a lot of internal uh, politics in the United States in this period that is anti-British. You also have a large just anti-interventionist sentiment. And, and this, I kind of argue in my work, is the default American foreign policy. Simply keep us out of things. Um, you can call it isolationism. You can call it non-interventionism. There's a debate about those terms. But for most of this country's history, I would say before 1945, the default position of most people was leave us alone. We've got these two great oceans separating us. We don't need to get involved in this stuff. Um, Pearl Harbor sort of shows the problem with that in the modern world, right? Where in fact, enemy forces can reach your shores um, pretty effectively. And so isolationism, I think for most people today is seen as a policy that, that can't really work, um, at least in the traditional way that it's viewed. Okay, well said. So let's recap World War I. On one side, we basically had Germany, Austria, Hungary, and probably a couple other countries I'm missing. But on the other side, Turkey's in there as well. Excuse me? The, the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman Empire, Turkey. Thank you. And then on the other side, we have England, France, the United States, Russia, Serbia, and probably a couple other countries I'm missing as well. Uh, but those yep. are the main players. And it was essentially a stalemate. It was a brutal war. World War I was a horrific war. They were using gas warfare on one another. Um, and so it just, it didn't end well. There was this Treaty of Versailles that um, sort of led up to World War II. I think a lot of the German people felt like the Treaty of Versailles uh, unfairly impacted the German economy. And so is that a fair overview of World War I? Yeah, I think there's a couple of key factors. So you're absolutely right. I mean, World War I becomes a stalemate, especially on the Western Front. So we're talking about the line of of combat between essentially Belgium through France. This becomes a bloody stalemate where hundreds of thousands of lives are given up to obtain maybe a few feet of land in some cases. Um, so this is a level of violence, as I always tell my students and, and audiences I talk to about, that we can't even really imagine today. I mean, this is throwing away lives 
for really no reason. And, and the generals sort of know that that's what they're doing. In fact, there was this view that the generals were somehow stupid or evil. That's not the case at all. They simply had no better ideas. Um, and that's why you see this huge proliferation of technology, especially on the Western Front, where you see the introduction of tanks by the end of the war, you see the introduction of aircraft being used for combat. I mean, the, the airplane is barely invented, really, when, when World War I breaks out. Now we're actually using it for reconnaissance and for bombing. And we have poison gas which is so horrendously misused because no one really understands the implications of it, um, that by the end of the war, both sides say we're never going to use this again. Um, you know, and this is something that um, even during the Second World War, the Germans do not deploy in a battlefield setting. Of course, it's used with horrendous effect in, in the Holocaust. Um, but Hitler, because he has been a, a frontline soldier and is actually at the end of the war lying blind from a gas attack, refuses to allow his generals to deploy poison gas. So this is something, you know, I think one thing that always strikes me about World War I is that almost no one understands the implication of what they're doing because it's never been done before. But by World War II, you know, we have th this killing that happens in World War I becomes much more mechanized. On the other hand, there are some things that even in, the, in that war they won't do. So that's point one. I think point two is, is Versailles. Versailles is probably the fundamental document of the 20th century, I would say, because actually, if you look at a map, and this is really fascinating, a lot of the countries that we have still today are drawn on the Versailles table. Now, some of them cease to exist after World War II, but we recreate them after the after the fall of the Berlin Wall. Um, but there's two things that really that really irk the Germans. The first, well, three things. The first is that Germany loses a lot of territory, um, and it is basically ordered to give up this territory, and so that becomes a sticking point for obvious reasons. Point two is that there is a what's called a war guilt clause, which is a section in the Treaty of Versailles in which Germany agrees that it bears sole responsibility for the outbreak of war. Now, this is not true, right? It's simply not true that, that Germany started the war. Um, the Allied powers had, had a share of, of guilt there as well. And yet Germany is, in their minds, forced to take responsibility. And the concomitant aspect of that is that they are forced them to pay reparations. Now, most of these reparations are going to go to France because France has suffered immense property damage in the war. Um, but even sensible British voices like John Maynard Keynes, the great economist, is saying this is a terrible idea to make Germany pay reparations, not only because it's going to antagonize the German people and make a war more likely, because it makes no economic sense. You're going to bankrupt Germany and you're going to create a, a, a unstable economic situation and, in fact, probably an unstable credit cycle, which is indeed what happens and helps lead to the Great Depression. So we have to remember that Versailles was, was in many ways, not uncontroversial at the time. And there were a lot of people that said this, is, this treaty is simply not a good idea. Okay, so that leads us to World War II. So when did World War II actually start? Well, that's a great question as well. It sort of depends who you ask. Um, if, if you ask China, World War II starts with the invasion of Manchuria by Japan. If you ask Britain or France or Poland, World War II starts on September 1st, 1939, when Germany invades Poland. So what we have to remember, and I think this is something that I'm actually thinking about a lot at the moment, is that World War II is not one war. It's multiple wars. At a minimum, it's two wars, right? It's the Pacific War and the European War. Maximally, it's a bunch of different wars, actually, that get joined together because countries happen to be allied with each other. And so early on in the Pacific theater, it's Japan versus China, and then it's Japan versus the British when they begin attacking British colonies. The U.S. only gets involved after Pearl Harbor. Initially, the war in Europe is Germany versus Poland. France and Britain then get into that war. The Soviet Union, though, the later antagonist where the bulk of the violence actually happens in World War II, is initially allied with Germany. 
And so I think this is something that, that we have to really remember is this is not one conflict. We, especially as Americans, we tend to think of the war as being, you know, Pearl Harbor happens and then D-Day happens and then we win. That's not really what happens at all. Okay. So the earliest we could go back in terms of when did World War II actually start would be in the early 1930s when Japan invaded China, correct? Yeah, so you have, you have Japanese imperialism. It's not just China. We should mention it's you know various islands throughout the throughout the Pacific where they're creating what they call the the Japanese co-prosperity sphere. So what, so the way the Japanese present their imperialism to the world, which again is a world dominated still by the British Empire, really, and you know being an empire is not necessarily a bad thing in a lot of people's minds in this era, is that they are bringing in these areas and they're sort of civilizing them to use sort of the classic language of colonialism, and so this is really how. The war in the Pacific starts. The Japanese begin bringing these countries under their sphere of influence militarily or economically. So this will surprise a lot of people. So China was on our side during World War II, correct? Absolutely. No, this is this is another fascinating thing. I mean, of course, as was the Soviet Union. But yes, China, China becomes one of the first victims or large victims of Japanese imperialism with the invasion of Manchuria. Um, which is one of the, the most violent events of the 20th century. I mean, the, the death toll there is just absolutely astonishing. There are horrendous reports. Um, and, and there's a large backlash against it in the United States, actually. Um, one, one, actually, if we want to talk about surprising facts, is that Japan is actually an ally in World War I mm. of, of the Allies, right? They actually join the war fairly late, declare war on the Central Powers, and they get a seat at the Versailles Treaty wow. table. So they're actually on the winning side. And they remain actually allied with the British throughout the 1920s. The British helped build up the Japanese Navy in that period because they are seen as an ally. And so this is, you know, another surprising factor is that a lot of these alliances that we think of as being immutable and existing, you know, throughout the 20th century were not the case at all. I mean, if you if you were a betting person in the United States and you were betting in the 1920s who the U.S. was going to go to war with next, you might say Britain, actually, because Britain is still the world's largest empire. And they have a lot of essential things the U.S. needs, like rubber for the automobile industry. Well, and, and so, you know, it was very difficult to foresee what was going to happen. We've also gone to war with them a couple times before. So, well, the, la the last one had been, you know, the War of 1812, <laughs> really. But well yeah, for us, you know, they burnt down our White House. <laughs> and the Capitol, yeah. Um, but no, it's, it, you know, the U.S.-British relationship is not good in this period. And, you know, there was a, a, not necessarily a high chance, but there was certainly a chance that the U.S. and Britain would have come to blows over something in the 1920s. Okay. So we have Japan invading China in the early 1930s, and then Germany invades Poland in 1939. Is that correct? September 1st, 1939. That's right. Okay. And that's when World War II starts in Europe. Correct. And very quickly, um, Germany basically runs through Europe. Um, I'm going to butcher this, but I think the quote is Hitler did in 40 days what they couldn't do in four years during World War One. Is that accurate? Absolutely. So what, what we have to understand the timeline here again, because I think it's important to remember that none of this was necessarily foreseeable. So Hitler moves into Poland, which was pretty foreseeable, to be honest, in September of 1939. Um, very rapidly knocks Poland out of the war, although the Poles, you know, there's often this view that the Poles don't really resist all that much. It's completely untrue. The Poles fight boldly and bravely and do things like launch cavalry charges against panzers, which does not end well for them. But, but there's no lack of courage on the Polish side. 
Um, the Germans then go about beginning to liquidate, frankly, the Polish population. So they begin killing and targeting intellectuals, politicians, anyone who will present, present resistance, and then, of course, move on to, to the large Jewish population. So the Holocaust really begins in September of 39 in Poland. Um, Hitler then turns his attention. So this is fall of 39. In, in spring of 1940, he turns his attention to France and strikes against France uh, through Belgium, basically the same route as World War I, but through a region that was thought to be impassable. And so this is through the power of his, his panzer divisions. Um, what would have taken infantrymen a long time to cross, panzers were able to do in a couple of days. And so Hitler takes France by surprise. And, and really the astonishing moment is when Paris falls. The French, the French army is simply defeated. It's routed. The British expeditionary force has to retreat to Dunkirk, um, where they are essentially trapped. They have to be evacuated under, under terrible circumstances. Um, but this is a real wake-up call for the world. You know, when Hitler defeats Poland, um, that's, that's not seen as terribly surprising to people. When he defeats France in a few weeks, that is shocking to people. Um, and when Americans see the newsreel footage of, of Nazi troops marching down the Champs-Élysées and Hitler going on tour in Paris and posing in front of the Eiffel Tower, I mean, this is, this is a, something that people never thought would happen, really. But we don't declare war against Germany. Um, is that accurate? For at least another two years. We don't declare war until after Pearl Harbor. That's right. Um, and so, you know, this is where I, I talk about this a lot in my book, but U.S. public opinion in this era is deeply, deeply divided. And this is something that we often forget today because we want to think, you know, of course we were going to get on the side of the allies. Of course we were going to fight Hitler. And of course we would win. Not true at all. Throughout this period, there is a strong isolationist sentiment, just like in World War I. Um, there are some Americans that I focus on in my book that actually want the U.S. to ally with the Nazis. That is a, a small but but fairly vocal minority, but more sort of insidiously, I mean, there is a strong presence on Capitol Hill um, that from both parties, we should mention, that simply doesn't want the U.S. to get involved, thinks this is not our fight, thinks that the U.S. will simply lose this war. Um, and even more conspiratorially, some of these people think that, that getting into World War I was a mistake or, or a British trick or something like that. And so much like World War I, I think in summer of 1940, there's no guarantee the U.S. is going to get into the war at all. Now, Roosevelt, I think, very brilliantly thinks that the U.S. must be ready for war, that it is going to inevitably get drawn in. Um, and that's Roosevelt's genius, I think, in this period, is that even when the, the deck is really strongly stacked against him in the spring and summer of 40, um, he begins putting into motion the things that will make the U.S. prepared to fight. Now, an interesting question is, if the U.S. had gotten into the war, let's just take a hypothetical and say after France falls, the U.S. gets in on the side of the British and, and just enters the war full scale, would it have been very effective? I think the answer there is no. The U.S. is not equipped to fight in 1940. And so to some extent, Roosevelt is buying time. Got it. Fascinating. So the United States officially gets involved with Japan on December 7th, 1941, when we were attacked in Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, correct? That's right. So, so actually what happens is that Germany declares war on the U.S. first. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, this is something that no one really knows. So, you know, the Pearl Harbor attack takes place. Roosevelt then goes to Congress and declares war on Japan. The U.S. is not at war with Germany at that point. Hitler actually declares war on the U.S. first. Now, there is some, some debate among... Um, I would say historians of a certain political sort of persuasion. And, and by that, I mean, sort of historians who are sort of on the side of, of 
you know, sort of far right views, I guess, on the Second World War to some extent, we can talk about that more, um, who say that maybe the U.S. didn't have to fight the Germans, right, that maybe this was a mistake on Hitler's part. And there is some debate as to why Hitler does this. Um, why does he declare war on the U.S. when it wasn't necessary? I think probably it was a foregone conclusion. I think the U.S. and Germany are going to end up at war anyway. Um, but it is helpful, actually, for Roosevelt that he doesn't have to declare war first. Okay, so let's lay out the players and the teams. It's called the Access versus the Allies. So after December 7th, 1941, we basically have the stage set for World War II. So who were the Axis powers and who were the Allied powers? So the, the event that we've missed in the middle here, actually, it's a critical one, is the invasion of the Soviet Union. So in spring of 41, Hitler has secretly massed actually the largest invasion force ever assembled in human history up until that point and secretly attacks or not, not doesn't secretly attack, but uh, launches a surprise attack on the USSR. Now, this is really shocking, actually, to Stalin, uh, who you, we have this view of being, you know, this cynical, brutal leader, which he certainly was. But he's deluded himself into believing that Hitler is not going to attack him. And in fact, in the weeks before the attack, begins receiving intelligence reports um, from Soviet agents, uh, even in Berlin, warning him that an attack is imminent, and he dismisses them. And, and in fact, orders these reports to stop coming to the Kremlin. So Stalin is shocked when Hitler invades. Um, and the Soviet army essentially collapses. It's, it's in no condition to fight, uh, really, in the best of times. It's also been politically purged from 1937 onward. And so the Soviets begin collapsing. And we have to remember that the German panzer divisions that Hitler sends actually end up at the gates of Moscow by Pearl Harbor. And so this is the moment at which, you know, if you want to get into counterfactuals, this is Hitler's moment to win the war potentially in the, in this winter of 1941 before Pearl Harbor, he appears poised to, to defeat the Soviet Union, which would be a victory condition, I would argue for, for Germany under these circumstances. So, so the sides after that happens are, you know, the Soviet Union, Britain, France, when it's liberated, but France is occupied at this point. Um, and actually Vichy France is allied with the Nazis. So it's Britain, the Soviet Union and the United States, um, and then peripheral players from the British Empire. So, of course, Canada, South Africa, India, Australia, they are drawn into it as well um, versus effectively what they call greater Germany at this point. So this is Nazi Germany, plus all the areas it's militarily occupied. Um, we have to remember that they actually have allies, though, as well. This is often something we forget. Romania and Hungary are allied with, with the Nazis in this period. Um, they are not occupied. They are actually allied. Um, in, in theory, voluntarily, but, but in fact, it's not entirely voluntary. Um, and of course, then the major ally in the Pacific is, is Japan and, and Italy. Okay. And when you talk about the panzer divisions, those were uh, the German panzer divisions, the tanks, is that correct? Correct. Yeah. So this is Hitler's great tactical innovation. That's not really his, but, but the German generals um, is, is Blitzkrieg war. So the combination of panzer divisions and Luftwaffe attack from the air simultaneously. Um, typically, the Luftwaffe would hit first with dive bombing or other uh, bombing attacks to soften up the targets. The panzer divisions would then drive as quickly as possible, smash through them, and then infantry would come through third to try to mop up and control the area. So, so this is a, a military tactic no one had ever seen before because there were no tanks really in World War I, and certainly not the number of tanks, the quality of tanks they have at, have at this point. So you can imagine how terrifying this is, especially if you are the French army and have a fairly limited number of tanks. Yeah. You know what else is terrifying to think is that basically Germany won World War II. I mean, there was a point where they controlled all of Europe, um, 
and the the phrase that bothers me the most is when people say, "Oh, the Germans lost because they opened up a two front war." No, actually, we fronted, we fought a two front war. At the time, Germany invaded Russia. I mean, they weren't fight, fighting a two front war. Is that accurate? They sort of are. They're fighting the British. Okay. Of course, the British are sitting behind the English Channel, um, and that's primarily an air war. So yeah, so so Hitler, when he defeats France, is able to pull back the ground troops from France and put them on the Eastern Front. Now, this probably also saves Britain because remember, remember that Hitler is poised initially to to launch a land invasion of Britain, and whether that would have been successful or not um, is is a great question because of course you have to go across the English Channel. Um, and, and of course, then you know, conquering and occupying actually Britain itself would be a, a tricky endeavor. Um, but but Hitler gives up on that and begins preparing for the invasion of the Soviet Union. Okay. Well, no disrespect to the British, but um, <laughs> were were they really? Was Germany really fighting the British when they invite when they invaded the Soviet Union? Uh, there is still an air war, but there okay. is basically no ground combat at that point. Yeah. Interesting. So then he invades Russia and things go south quickly there because, you know, he forgets about the Russian winners. Apparently it was a very harsh winter in 1941. Um, but, you know, it's, it's the same mistake that Napoleon makes, right? Now, we, we forget that Napoleon actually made it into Moscow. He was actually in the city. The city then caught fire, which led him to evacuate through the Russian winter. Um, Hitler's panzer divisions don't make it into Moscow, Um now, there's a couple of problems with the Russian winter. I mean, not only is it very cold, but it's also that the Germans haven't properly prepared. So Hitler has not issued winter coats to his soldiers because he assumes that they will have winter quarters, which they don't end up having. Um, he also, the, the primary form of, of transport for the, for the Wehrmacht is horses. Horses don't do too well when it's extremely cold outside. In fact, most of the horses die. I mean, it actually gets so cold this particular winter that engine blocks and oil begin to freeze. Wow. And so it's the German supply lines that really begin to, to become the issue. And of course, in conditions like that, your panzers are going to have difficulty operating as well. Okay. So Germany makes the blunder of invading Russia, especially during the winter. And then the D-Day invasion happens in June 6th of 1944. And explain the significance of the D-Day invasion. So D-Day is, is really the critical moment. So if, when we look at what the Allies are saying to each other between 1941 and 44, remember this is a couple of years later, Stalin is absolutely begging Roosevelt and Churchill to open up the second front. So at that point, it is a one front war. The Soviet Union is taking the bulk of the fighting. And in fact, they will take the bulk of the Allied casualties. The Soviet Union loses 20 million people in the Second World War. I mean, it's absolutely astonishing. Um, and so Stalin is begging Roosevelt and Churchill to open up the second front. Now, this could be potentially in Italy. And in fact, the U.S. does invade Italy at one point, knocks Italy out of the war. Um, but Stalin wants this to be a, an all-out invasion of the Third Reich. And so that, that will become D-Day. Um, the U.S. builds up its troops in Britain over the course of a year, um, and, and they launch this incredibly ambitious effort. You know, we, we said a moment ago that an invasion of, of Britain was of questionable success potential because... You know, are you really going to be able to occupy Britain? Are you really going to be able to get the troops across? On D-Day, the, the Allies do do this. So the Americans, the British, and we often forget the Canadians uh, actually had a beach on D-Day as well. Um, you know, an, an immensely bold plan. And, and really, a, one of the most moving documents that I've seen from the Second World War is reading the speech that Eisenhower prepared in the event of failure, in which he himself takes full personal responsibility for the death toll and, and potentially the defeat of the Allied war effort had this gone slightly differently. It's an incredibly moving document. 
Yeah, so the D-Day invasion, the Canadians definitely do not get enough credit for that, right? Well, that's right. You know, we, we often forget that, that actually the British took part in that as well, mm-hmm. um, you know, because the, the main sort of, and I think the, the film Saving Private Ryan had a big role in this, but Omaha Beach. Now, of course, this was the bloodiest beach, um, and it was a, a fully, I think, yeah, fully American beach, as I recall. Um, but Omaha Beach really becomes the, the touchstone. But there were there were other other beachheads as well that were seized that were they were just as strategically important in a lot of ways. Okay, so the Allies we invade. Well, we we liberate France in the invasion of Normandy. It's the largest amphibious invasion in human history. Is that accurate? Yeah, largest amphibious assault in, in history. Correct. Thank you. And now Germany definitely has a two front war. Correct. Absolutely. I mean, I think from D-Day onward, really, what you're seeing is the slow motion destruction of the Reich. Now, the story that we often don't remember in the U.S. is that this has actually already begun to happen on the Eastern Front. So the Battle of Stalingrad, right, where an entire German army is captured. Um, Then we have the Battle of of Kursk, the largest tank battle ever fought, um, involving thousands of tanks. I mean, the, the Soviets at this point are already pressuring the Reich pretty strongly. Now, the sort of counterfactual question has always been, if D-Day hadn't happened and Hitler had not had to worry about the Western Front, could he have defeated the Soviets in the East? I don't know. I think that's an open question. But, but now, not only is it a two-front war, but this is a two-front war that, that I think most German generals after D-Day believe that they're going to lose. Um, and so it's only a matter of time. I think most Germans, um, most German generals, I should say, at least believe before they are defeated in some form or fashion. What was the relationship like between the allied leaders versus the Axis leaders? You know, this is fascinating because when you think about who the allied leaders are, these are not necessarily leaders that are friendly to each other under any other circumstances, as we as we certainly see in the Cold War period. Um, but Stalin and Churchill actually have an interesting relationship. You know, they, they managed to correspond throughout the war. Um, and, you know, there's these these odd moments where when they are able to meet in person, especially late in the war, um, you know, they are offering toasts to one another. Um, you know, Churchill had been a, a staunch anti-communist in the 1920s. At one point talks about, you know, strangling Bolshevism in its cradle. Um, and now he's suddenly, you know, drinking drinking schnapps with, uh, with Joseph Stalin. So, you know, it, it's sort of the politics or in this case, warfare makes strange bedfellows um, phenomenon. Um, Roosevelt and Churchill have a close relationship as well. Churchill actually makes a secret visit to Washington, D.C., where he stays in the White House and actually has a heart attack while he's there. Um, Roosevelt and Churchill meet at sea a couple of times under incredibly dangerous conditions. When you have German U-boats out there, they actually meet on on vessels that that, um, that dock next to each other. So we, we have these interesting relationships um, and interesting relationship dynamics that we know quite a bit about because uh, the documentary record has been very well preserved. What's interesting is that the Axis leaders have very poor relationships with each other. Mussolini and Hitler don't really get along at all. Yeah. Mussolini, you know, comes to power 10 years before Hitler. He sees him as a poser um, because Hitler has picked up on a lot of his imagery and, and, and models himself on Mussolini. Hitler, in turn, thinks that Mussolini is, is weak and that the Italian army isn't, isn't worth anything on the battlefield. As we see in, in the various battles, the Italian army is not exactly uh, well equipped. I mean, the invasion of Greece, actually, Hitler becomes quite upset because um, he is forced to bail out Mussolini. The Italians get bogged down. Hitler has to take away 
uh, divisions that could be used elsewhere in the war effort to to ensure that Greece is not a failure for Mussolini. Well, he didn't and there's him, no right. Sorry, go ahead. Mussolini didn't tell Hitler that he was going to invade Greece. Right. No, it's, and Mussolini tries to act under his own auspices here and just gets himself into trouble repeatedly. Um, and then when the invasion of Italy happens, is completely unable to stop the Allies. It's, it's German divisions that really do the bulk of the fighting, um, the fighting and the, and the dying of that. So, so Mussolini and Hitler don't necessarily get along either. Um, and then, of course, with the Japanese, there's virtually no military cooperation. Um, partially because it's so far, um, and the Japanese have a whole set of, of alternative uh, objectives they're trying to achieve. The interesting thing to remember is that the term Axis actually comes from their alliance. So their alliance is the anti-Bolshevik Axis. They present themselves as the anti-communist powers. We're talking here the, the Nazis, the Italians, and the Japanese, um, which which already leads us to the real conclusion here, which is that what all the country all these folks want to fight is is the USSR, and that's eventually where they see this converging is that they will all join join up against the Soviet Union. Yeah, and the Germans and the Japanese, they had a very uneasy relationship. I think they both made uh, non-aggression pacts with Russia behind the other's back. Is that accurate? Yeah, they do. And, and partially this is because they have other things that they want to do in the meantime, right? I mean, and, and Hitler, you know, the, the Nazi-Soviet pact is really a shocking document when you think about it. And you can certainly find a copy of the, of the details of it, which weren't, weren't known at the time, by the way. The details were secret. Um, but as part of this, Stalin actually pays Hitler tribute. So, I mean, he sends raw goods and trains across the border to the Nazis. And there's accounts of, of you know, before the, the hour hits when they're supposed to invade, there's still Soviet trains coming across, bringing supplies. And then the German army goes across and invades. So Stalin, up until the last moment, is, is desperate to preserve this alliance. Fascinating. Do you think the majority of the German people understood the horrors of the Holocaust at the time of World War II, or did Hitler try to keep it um, secretive? You know what, this is a fascinating question, and this is something that I, I teach on actually all the time. You know, I think it, it's impossible to know what the majority of people knew, but it is, I will put it this way, it's certainly true that many Germans knew a lot. Now, when we talk about the Holocaust, it sort of depends what we're talking about. Um, the concentration camps, the early ones like Dachau, these were camps that were built for quote unquote criminals or socialists or communists or people who were um, seen as outliers in society. In fact, uh, prostitutes were sent to, to Dachau at early, in the early phases. This was publicized in the newspapers. And in fact, this was seen as a positive thing that the Nazis were cleaning up Germany as it was seen at the time. Not only was it publicized to Germans, they would take foreign dignitaries on tours of Dachau. There are photos of, of British um, tourists going on tours and often writing back. We can, we've seen their letters and saying that Dachau is great. This is the kind of thing we need in Britain type thing. So, so this aspect of the Holocaust was publicized. Um, and the other aspects of, of the early Holocaust were certainly well known. The Kristallnacht, November of 1938, this is the moment where I argue in my book that, that this is on the front page of every newspaper in the world, this, this mass violence against Jews, the mass arrests, the murders in the streets. How could anyone pretend they didn't know about this? Now, the Nazi diplomats around the world try to say, oh, well, it's, you know, it's not as bad, it's fake news, you know, this, this kind of line. But, but really, I mean, how do you look at something like that happening and not know the nature of the regime after an event like that? Now, what the, the German people did know less about was the industrialized killing late in the war. Um, when you have the Auschwitz complex being constructed. Now, we have to remember that none of these complexes were built in Germany. 
they were all built in unoccupied areas because the Germans didn't want this on their soil. So they were deporting people out of Germany. So, so how much people knew about things like Auschwitz, um, certainly the answer is much less. But that said, you know, research has suggested that, that this was pretty widely known. I mean, certainly people knew that Jews were disappearing. Um, you know, there, there was a fairly large Jewish population in Germany prior to World War II, and they certainly knew that those, those people had, had disappeared. But whether they knew that they were killed or not, um, I think is an interesting question. There's quite a lot of research going on on this topic now, and, and I'm hoping we'll get some great studies on this in the years to come. Yeah, and I think we often forget that there was a eugenics movement here in the United States during the 1920s. It was very popular. My second episode is a case called Buck versus Bell. It's a horrific time in our history where we were sterilizing uh, what we called feeble-minded people, and that was broadly interpreted. So um, this was a different era, and uh, it's uh, horrible to look back at, and that's part of the reason we created the United Nations, correct, after World War II, to try to bring the world together. It had a, a noble mission from the start, and, and that was part of the reason. Is that fair to say? Yeah, the, well, what's interesting is if you look at sort of wartime allied propaganda, by the end of the war, they're referring to themselves as the United Nations. And so this is what the United Nations really is, is the outgrowth of the World War II alliance. And this is something that, you know, when I, when I teach sort of international contemporary IR stuff, um, you know, a lot of people ask, you know, why does Russia have a veto on the Security Council? Why does China have a veto on the Security Council? You know, this is something that where today this is used to oppose the interests of the United States. The reason is because they were allies in World War II. And so the original charter of the Security Council is that the allies, the original allies, will all have a veto over, over each other's actions. So the ideal of, of the United Nations is a beautiful one. It's the idea that, that conflict should be resolved through negotiation rather than through warfare whenever possible. And I think it's undoubtedly, I, I, I think there's really no doubt that the UN has been largely successful. If you look at the post-war period, it is one of the largest periods of human peace ever. Right. I mean, we haven't had a major war, thank goodness, knock on wood, since 1945. Has it been 100 percent successful? Obviously not. The other factor there is NATO. So NATO, of course, is founded as the counterbalance to the Eastern Bloc, which begins emerging after the war. Um, but NATO, of course, has, has had a large role in preserving that peace as well. So really, the what they try to do after 1945 is build the conditions in which a breakdown like 1914, a complete breakdown of diplomacy, complete breakdown of the world order, huge war erupts really with no one intending it to, that can't happen because there's a venue where people can meet. And then it, in the event that there is a war, there's going to be a mediation body that has some teeth. You know, in, in the 1920s, there was a League of Nations, which when Mussolini invades Abyssinia, can't do anything. They actually try to arrange what we would call sanctions today, and people just don't take part. In fact, they, they try to sanction Italy's oil supply, and the U.S. says, no, we're not going to keep selling oil to Italy, right? So the sanctions process doesn't work. The U.N. sanctions actually are pretty effective. Yeah, and if the pandemic has taught us anything, um, it's very important for us to have some sort of international body. And uh, I think the World Health Organization, who is getting a lot of bad press right now, and some of it I think is fair, uh, but they have done a lot of good for this world. If you look at the United Nations was established, I think it was 1950, around 1950. Um, what the World Health Organization has done since then has been amazing. What they've done in Africa, Asia, you know, all over the globe. So uh, we need to give credit where credit is due, even though they're getting some bad PR right now. <laughs> 
Yeah, what I always say about this is, you know, a lot of the criticisms of any of these bodies is deserved, just like any institution. But would we rather live in a world without them? I mean, do we really want to imagine a world in which there is no UN, there's no WHO? I don't really see how that makes it better. I agree. And I have a lot of libertarian ideologies, but um, I think the United Nations does a lot more good than harm. So um, I guess I'm a complicated individual. Um, let's talk about the end of World War II. So we we already discussed Europe. You know, we had the D-Day invasion. We had Germany invading Russia. They opened up a two-front war. It did not end well for them. Um, and that's how the war was lost for the Germans in Europe. In the Pacific theater against Japan, there was a different story. How, how did World War II end in the Pacific? Yeah, so World War II in the Pacific is a very different thing, obviously, um, just by the nature of the war. This is a war that's fought largely at sea. Um, the Marine Corps has a great role in it because they are seizing um, islands that have been occupied by the Japanese using amphibious assaults, which are terribly deadly um, and just horrendous, really, almost unimaginably violent. Um, and so by 1945, really, Japan has Japan is virtually surrounded at that point. I mean, there's there's really no way that Japan is going to long term win the war. That's not to say that it's going to surrender either. Um, you know, and Japan and Germany are culturally very different. Um, Japan has the emperor. Uh, loyalty is is to um, one's one's family group and things like that more so than in a European country. Um, and so, I think really Japan is is a very different. Um, political entity in that sense. Um, but it's also, we have to remember, the for a lot of Americans, it's, it's the bigger enemy. It's the place that really drew the U.S. into the war. It's responsible for Pearl Harbor in the public imagination. And so I think from, from what I'm seeing as I continue to research this, this is one of the areas I'm looking at right now, the public fury in the U.S. against Japan is just much greater than it is against Germany, especially late in the war. Um, and so I think what happens at the end of the war is largely a reflection of, of American sort of anger still over what happened at Pearl Harbor. That's such a fascinating point because um, my first episode is on a case called Korematsu versus the United States. Yeah. That's where um, FDR interned uh, Japanese Americans, not one of which was ever convicted of treason, um, yep. but he didn't really do the same to the Germans. So there was unfair treatment between the access powers here in the United States. Is that right? Absolutely. So the Japanese American internment is unique because it targeted the entire group. Now, this is an area actually I'm working on at the moment, but there was German American internment as well, but it was not oriented at the entire population. And of course, the German American population was millions. So to some extent, you know, this was a very different thing. But I think it's impossible to say that there's not a great amount of prejudice that feeds into this as well, um, especially on the West Coast of the United States. There's decades and decades of anti-Asian agitation. Um, the exclusionary laws in, in states like California were, were really not that, they were in the fairly recent past at that point. So I think on the one hand, you have this, this level of, of great prejudice that results in, in this human tragedy. Um, but you know there is quite a bit of research being done on the German-American internment as well. And one interesting fact that I actually didn't know this until recently when I started looking at it, we actually repatriated German-Americans to the Third Reich in the middle of the war, we actually deported people, um, some of whom were children who had been born in the U.S. because their parents were Germans. And we actually sent them on diplomatic ships to the Third Reich. Um, and yeah, so it's a really just a strange part of history. So we dropped two atomic bombs on Japan to end the war. Um, 
why did we drop the second one so quickly after the first one? That seems very harsh to me. Um, you know, news traveled a lot slower back then. I think they were only a week apart. Why didn't we wait a little bit um, and kind of let the Japanese leaders see uh, the horrors of what really happened? Yeah, this is a this is a hotly debated question among historians. Um, I think we, we have to remember a couple of things when it comes to, to Truman. We have to remember this is President Truman now. This is not Roosevelt. Roosevelt has died in April of 1945. Does, interestingly, Hitler outlives Roosevelt. A lot of people don't realize that. Only by a few weeks, but he does. Um, we have to remember that when, when Roosevelt dies, and he dies abruptly, um, although he was in very poor health for a long time, he had not told Truman anything about the atomic bomb. It's actually the, the military that comes to Truman and sort of pulls him aside when he's become president and says, we have this weapon. So that's point one, is that Truman doesn't know anything about it. And we have no idea what Roosevelt's intentions with the A-bomb would have been had he lived. Point two is that nobody really understood the atomic bomb in this period. So when we say that we dropped two atomic bombs, that's certainly true. They were actually different types of devices. So to some extent, these are two experimental weapons where no one really knows what's going to happen with them. Um, and so that doesn't change in any way, I think, the morality of this decision. We, I mean, we have to remember this is you know, something that kills astonishing numbers of civilians. Um, but we also understand that, that this wasn't really understood as to what this was. The other factor that wasn't understood was the radiation. We didn't really know what the long-term effects of radiation are. And if you look at experiments that are done at places like Los Alamos um, after the war, I mean, they're doing, playing around with nuclear reactions, you know, just like with their hands and things like that. I mean, there are scientists that die from mass radiation exposure, doing things that, that like strike us as like blood curdlingly horrendous today. Um, so no one really understands radiation and, and understands the long-term effects of that, especially for, for children and, and right. things like that. So I think, you know, these are devices that aren't really understood. The counterfactual that's often been asked is, you know, would it have had the same effect if the U.S. had detonated one of these devices on an uninhabited island and invited the Japanese to observe it or something along those lines? I think that's a fascinating counterfactual. I don't I don't know. I don't know what would have happened then. Um, but I think the reason that, that we dropped to is, you know, it's the fact that it's an experimental weapon, don't really know what's going to happen with it. Um, but I think it's also this sense of fury still about Pearl Harbor, that if these weapons work, um, if they do have the ability to end the war, um, then they are going to be used in that sense. Uh, we have to also remember, though, that the U.S., I think, has one more atomic bomb after the two we drop. So it's not we're not sitting on a huge arsenal at that point. So to some extent, it, it's it's a bluff. Wow. Fascinating discussion about World War II. Let's finish our time, what little time we have left, talking about your book. Once again, it's called Hitler's American Friends, the Third Reich's Supporters in the United States. Give us a little bit of a teaser. Who were who some of this, uh, the prominent vocal minority here in the United States? You know, it's a vocal minority, but it's actually quite a lot of people. Um, so the biggest group is, is called the German-American Bund. Now, this is a group that a lot of people um, haven't heard of at all, but it was a, a pro-Nazi group composed largely of recent German immigrants um, that, that really wanted to align the U.S. into a close relationship with the Third Reich. So these were folks that went drinking in German beer halls, um, sent their kids to Boone summer camps where they put on Nazi style uniforms and learned how to salute the Fuhrer and sung Nazi songs and things like this. Um, and the Bund itself wore uniforms that had a paramilitary wing, trained using weapons, um, things like this. Um, its leader, Fritz Kuhn, 
um, argued that the U.S. Uh, that Americanism and Nazism were fully compatible. These were two ideologies that could that could peaceably coexist. And then he goes further and says that that you know people like George Washington would be Nazis if they lived in the 20th century. So these are of course outlandish arguments. But the Bund has hundreds of thousands of members across the country, um, and it attracts a fairly large following, especially in large upper Midwestern cities where you have a large German American population. So so the Bund is out there. There's a few more sort of of you know, fringe groups like it, I think would be fair to say. But then you have a large number of Americans that, that fall into the trap of anti-Semitism in this period. This is one of the shocking things that I found researching this book. But when you look at polling, about a third of the country harbors views that we would see as really deeply anti-Semitic today. And these are people that then get drawn into listening to figures like Father Coughlin, who's perhaps the most famous radio, infamous radio host of all time, deeply anti-Semitic praising the Third Reich up until really the invasion of Poland and after. Um, he has the largest radio audience in history, perhaps as many as 30 or 35 million Americans a, a week are listening wow. to his broadcast. So this is a man who's openly praising the Third Reich. So that's group two is, is an, Americans who are deeply anti-Semitic. And one thing that we've glossed over is, you know, the U.S. at this point is not receiving Jewish refugees freely. Um, we have quota, quota laws on countries of origin for refugees, and the Roosevelt administration refuses to, to break those. So even when, and this is tragic, when Jews escape the Holocaust, manage to get a ticket across the Atlantic, we will often turn them away when they come to the United States, will not be admitted, and many of them will be sent back to die in the death camps later on. So anti-Semitism has a really negative effect in this period. And then the third group that I talk about is the isolationists. I argue that the isolationist lobby, especially here in Washington, but across the country as well, really ties the Roosevelt administration's hands in a lot of ways. Um, and while I don't think that necessarily every isolationist by any stretch of the imagination was a Nazi sympathizer, I think that, that they end up actually supporting Nazi geopolitical aims in this key period. So that's obviously a controversial conclusion, but I think I, I try to prove it in my, in my chapter on the America First Committee, um, which, which springs up really to oppose Roosevelt's entry into the war. So this is a part of history that, that you know, I wrote this book because no one else has ever really talked about it um, in the, to the extent that I have, I think. Um, you know, when I, when I teach history, I don't see it in the textbooks at all. Um, and it's a book that's really gotten some, some really interesting attention because, you know, it's, it's, it's themes that unfortunately have sort of reemerged in our politics today. Professor Hart, thank you for being on my podcast, for your passion on this subject, and for educating our youth. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me. It's been great. The information provided in this podcast does not and is not intended to constitute legal advice. Instead, all information, content, and materials available on this podcast are for general informational purposes only. Information in this podcast may not constitute the most up-to-date legal or other information. Listeners of this podcast should contact their attorney to obtain advice with respect to any particular legal matter. No reader or listener to this podcast should act or refrain from acting on the basis of information on this podcast without first seeking legal advice from counsel in the relevant jurisdiction. Only your individual attorney can provide assurances that the information contained herein and your interpretation of it is applicable or appropriate to your particular situation. Use of and access to this podcast or any of the resources contained within the podcast do not create 
an attorney-client relationship. The views expressed at or through this podcast are those of the individual author writing in their individual capacities only, not those of their respective employers. All liability with respect to actions taken or not taken based on the contents of this podcast are hereby expressly disclaimed. The content on this posting is provided as is. No representations are made that the content is error-free.